0: Welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts all about Scotland's history. You'd never have guessed from the title alone, would you? Uh, My name is Daniel. Daniel Downey. I'm a stand-up comedian based in Edinburgh. And I do a thing called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city... I tell them the history, I show them the sights, and I try and make them laugh. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about, is I'm giving Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So, as you listen, you'll hopefully learn a bit, and you'll laugh a lot as well. Uh, Today's podcast is all about the capture and the excessively brutal execution of one of Scotland's greatest patriots. In fact, you know what? Not one of Scotland's greatest patriots. Scotland's greatest ever patriot. William Wallace at the hands of Edward I. Uh, Edward had William Wallace's innards cut out and then shoved into his very own stomach lining before he then boiled it for an hour and a half. Although it has to be said these days, you can actually do it in the microwave and it's uh, it's amazing the results. It's quite tasty. And some of the vegetarian versions as well, by the way, absolutely outstanding. It has to be... Oh, wait, hang on. I on. I realise what I've done now. Oh, that's embarrassing. Yeah, I've gone and mixed up my notes on William Wallace's execution and my notes on how haggis is made. Ah, dear. Ah, well. Uh, Although, expect uh, a podcast about haggis. Sometimes. Listen, if, if this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, right, this is a sort of nonsense that you should expect over the next kind of half hour, 25 minutes. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, This podcast is mainly Scottish history mixed in with a lot of Tory bashing and jokes about Prince Andrew. I can't help it. They just keep coming to me. You know, if that sounds like your thing, then you're going to enjoy it. Um, If this is the first time that you're listening to the podcast, my suggestion would be to go back to episode one. I don't really talk about anything topical in the podcast. Uh, They all go in chronological order, so give a a decent bit of background into uh, what I'm talking about today, so each one kind of informs the one that follows it. Right, anyway, so without further ado, folks, here is your podcast all about the capture and the execution of the world-famous William Wallace. I do hope you enjoy it. I shall see you on the other side. Have fun out there, and enjoy there used to be a huge oak tree in the tor wood outside of falkirk and it was known as the wallace oak and it is said that this is the tree where william wallace slept the night before the battle of falkirk although other people claim it's the tree that he hid in after his defeat at the battle of falkirk oak trees having to suffice before you know fridges were invented for leaders to hide in um the oak tree is not there anymore it has been loved to death I don't mean that literally, by the way. Although to be fair, it is Falkirk. I wouldn't put it past them. You know what I mean, see if someone from Falkirk did uh, shag a tree, it'd be like you know those big trees in Lord of the Rings. It'd be like if a hobbit were to try and pump one of them. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're quite, they're quite a hobbit-like people, folk from Falkirk. You can. Uh, anyway, the the oak tree, like I said, isn't there anymore, and that's because it was cut away from by souvenir hunters over the years. In the 1790s, wood from the Wallace Oak, it was made into a box, and it was presented to George Washington. And then in 1822, the last roots of the tree were excavated to make a snuff box that was uh, presented to George IV on his visit to Edinburgh. Basically, what I'm saying is, you apparently you had to be called George if you wanted to get anything out of the Wallace Oak. And the Wallace Oak, it's representative of an important part of Scottish history, and that is the people's history. These are the stories that are passed down through the ages of William Wallace exploits. It's why we have so many Wallace trees and Wallace stones and Wallace wells, because the legend is bigger than the man himself, Edward. Through his brutal execution of William Wallace, he wanted to obliterate and destroy the name of William Wallace, but instead, his cruelty made the people even more determined to remember his name. Wallace is the national hero of Scotland because he is the one man, unlike Robert the Bruce, who never compromised with English tyranny. He never submitted to Edward I, and he fought his whole entire life for the independence of Scotland, um, which he didn't achieve... And which resulted in his brutal, bloody murder, um, which I suppose makes 2014 not seem quite as disappointing when you put it that way. You know, the defeat of Falkirk was the end of Wallace's brief time as guardian of Scotland and head of the community of the realm, as he resigned the guardianship shortly after the defeat of Falkirk. William Wallace, he knew that he relied, he really needed victory at Falkirk to secure the guardianship, to secure his leadership, because, you know, losing at Falkirk is just not acceptable if you want the top job, unless, of course, you're the Rangers manager, then it'd be absolutely fine, you know, the Rangers manager, he's allowed to lose it. Hamilton, Colmarnock, Aberdeen and Gorgie, no problem at all, no questions asked, you can now, it's not known whether William Wallace was pushed or whether he jumped. Uh, the nobles, they'd never been happy with someone of Wallace's low standing leading the country and heading up its armies. He wasn't one of the soggy biscuit class. You know, that's the sort of people that they deemed should be leading those things. But likewise, it's just as likely that Wallace became fed up with the bickering and the politicking of the Scottish nobles. He'd always kind of just been a strong man turned politician, a bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I suppose. Either way he stepped down. But that doesn't mean that William Wallace was a spent force. He went back to ranging the country with a band of hardened followers trying to inflict as much damage as he could on the garrisons Edward had left behind in Scotland to impose English rules. He retired English rule, sorry. He retired from politics and went back to doing what he did best, beating up Englishmen. And I feel like I would have much more respect for Gordon Brown if he had gone and done the same thing. Edward left Scotland in October 1298, forfeiting noble lands whom he considered deserved forfeit, including one Robert Bruce. But Scotland, it was only nominally under... English control. English presence was only really felt in the south of the country where they had their obligatory two Tory MPs in the borders. And south of the 4th, English soldiers, they were garrisoned in Scotland's major castles, but in the north, Wallace loomed large and English presence was minimal if at all. The country was not one year, and Wallace, he was far from finished. The resistance fight carried on in Scotland with some considerable success, but with Wallace no longer guardian, leadership had to be devolved amongst four men working in tandem with each other. There was John Common, the Red Common, Lord of Badenoch, recently succeeding his father. There was Robert Bruce, the Earl of Carrick, the Bishop William Lamberton of St Andrews, and Sir Ingrid de Amfreville. But none of the combinations of Guardians worked. The problem was the resentment between Scotland's two most powerful families, the Bruce's and the Commons. It was a deep-seated hatred between the two. Both of them, they had too much power. They were self-serving, self-righteous, dangerous, and everyone else in Scotland fucking hated them. They were like the old firm. And so with the Commons and Bruce's unable or unwilling to work together, the whole guardianship fell apart. Because as we know, a two-party system will inevitably result in polarisation, extremism and violence. So in May 1301, Sir John de Soules was appointed the sole guardian of Scotland. And de Soules, he was an experienced diplomat, neutral and level-headed. During this time, Wallace embarked on a new strategy for his single-minded pursuit of Scottish independence and his attempt to restore King John Balliol to the throne. He used his considerable standing and fame and acted as a kind of ambassador of Scotland. In 1299, he travelled to France to try and get the French king, Philippe the Fair, to uphold the Treaty of Paris, the old alliance of 1296. But it wasn't all that successful. There was to be no French military support. But what Philippe did say he would do is he would press the Pope to try and get the English to lay off the Scots. I mean, I don't really know what that's all about, to be honest with you. Like, if Philippe was looking at someone who was an expert at laying off Scots, then he should have gone to Margaret Thatcher, do you know what I mean? She's fucking brilliant at it. And what's all that about anyway, do you know what I mean? Like, asking the Pope to speak to the English to try and get them to lay off us. Is that what happens if you're getting bullied in a Catholic school? You just go to your teacher and the teacher goes, Ah, listen, don't worry, I'll have a word with the Pope. We'll see if we can get Francis to put an end to these bogwashes. It's going to be fine, wee man. Honestly, I don't want you to worry about it. Papal pressure did reap some rewards, however. In the year 1300, Edward, he released John Balliol from English custody into the custody of the Pope into papal prison, which I imagine is just like being locked in Sunday school, you know? You know what we should start doing is we should start threatening Rangers fans with papal prison. That would soon stop them, I reckon. You know what I mean? You just got to look... Any more of your rioting or your sectarian songs and you're going straight to papal prison, you hearing me? And in the autumn of 1301, John Balliol, he was released from papal prison and he went to his estates in France. So as unlikely as it would have seemed just a couple of years earlier, a restoration of John Balliol to the Scottish throne, it was now looking possible. It's just like when Boris Johnson was fired from the foreign office, you know, or fired from the Times for Fabricating Stories or fired from his position as Shadow Arts Minister after lying about an affair that he had? Or how about that time he lied about how many kids he has when he lied about the 350 million a week to the NHS after Brexit? When he lied about everything, basically. Even lying that he genuinely believes we should leave the EU, not to mention all the racist, misogynistic comments, shaking hands with COVID-infected patients, hiding in fridges, escaping out the back door at Butte House. Do you know what I mean? Like... Anything's possible, folks. Even the most incompetent and shitest of leaders can they can make a comeback. To Robert Bruce, this must have all seemed quite ominous. He had never recognised John Balliol as King of Scotland, and Balliol's restoration, it would mean the commons back in power, and it would end his own hopes of becoming King of Scotland. So in January 1302, Robert the Bruce, he suddenly defected to Edward once again. Edward was equally as concerned about the return of John Balliol and he was welcome of Bruce's support. A deal was struck between the two that Edward would support Bruce's claim should Balliol be restored to the throne. Bruce's defection, it was the start of the end of the Scottish resistance to Edward and to English rule. In July 1302, Philippe the Fair of France, he withdrew his support after defeating a battle by a Flemish army in Belgium. Being de- being defeated by flame has a very 2020 feel to it, doesn't it? And so, with Philippe withdrawing French support and having no time for Scotland, now in May 1303, France made peace with England, and there was no mention of Scotland. And the Pope even withdrew his support, instructing Scottish bishops to make peace with England. Scotland was isolated, and in 1303, Edward he prepared an invasion of Scotland that would crush the Scots. Once and for all. Wallace returned from France and headed up a small army that successfully defeated an expeditionary English force at Roslyn, just outside of Edinburgh, on the 24th of February, 1303. Now, a Scots army defeating an English army in Edinburgh is always particularly impressive, considering how heavily outnumbered you're going to be, you know, especially in August. Although, uh, to be fair, thankfully, they're all incredibly middle-class and terrified of anyone from the west coast of Scotland. As am I, to be fair, you know. But when Edward arrived with his full army in May 1303, there was to be no stopping him. He tore through the country, taking all of the castles and strongholds in southern Scotland before heading north, taking Brechin Castle, Aberdeen Castle, Banff Castle and Ackert Castle on the banks of Loch Ness, which is always particularly impressive considering it's defended by a monster. Brechin, Aberdeen, Banff and Loch Ness it sounds less like an invasion, more like a Runrig tour. And like Runrig, Edward, he was keen to finish at Stirling Castle. He had bypassed Stirling Castle, the place of ill omen for the English army in 1297, and he was saving it as the showpiece end to his conquest of Scotland. Edward, he kept up the pressure on Scotland, um, not returning to England, instead wintering in Dumfermline over the winter of 1304, which, I mean, fair play to him, he was certainly committed, do you know what I mean? Like, wintering in Dumfermline to a member of the English royalty, that must have felt like the revenant. Wallace, supported by Bishop William Lamberton, offered guerrilla resistance against Edward's invasion, and John Common, he still had a small army in the south of Scotland, but the situation was hopeless. Edward, he was determined to keep up the pressure on the Scots. And the end, f- it finally came on the 3rd of February 1304 when John Commons surrendered to Edward on behalf of the community of the realm. But it wasn't an unconditional an unconditional surrender such as it had been in 1296. Edward knew that he would need the support of Scottish nobles to accept his government, so he allowed them to keep their land and titles. Some of them had even made sheriffs. He had, learned his, he had learned his lesson after the victory at Dunbar in 1296 and he recognised he would need their support or at least acceptance in order to govern the country effectively. Wallace, however, he was dealt with not nearly as leniently. He was declared an outlaw at St Andrews in March 1304, presumably for refusing to wear a gile and hunter wellies and a, a price of £100 was put in his head, which is about the same as a price of a pint of beer in London. And at the St Andrew's Parliament, called by Edward, 129 Scottish landowners took him as their liege. Wallace's comrade at arms, Simon, Simon Fraser, he was also declared an outlaw, as were the former guardians, Sir John de Soules and Sir Ingram de Amfreville, who would not be offered safe passage back to Scotland from their exile in France until Wallace either surrendered or was caught. In April 1304, Edward could begin his showpiece siege of Stirling Castle. The castle was being held by Sir William Oliphant, And for three months, Edward watched on from the town as the castle was bombarded with mighty siege engines. And finally, on the 24th of July, 1304, Sir William Oliphant, he surrendered the castle and him and Wallace's right-hand man, Sir Simon Fraser, they submitted to Edward after the siege. Now, while observing the siege in Stirling Castle, Robert Bruce, he had a secret meeting with the patriotic bishop William Lamberton at Cambus Kenneth Abbey on the outskirts of Stirling. Bruce, he was active on Edward's side throughout the 1303-1304 invasion. He had travelled throughout with Edward, um, but their relationship, it was beginning to break down. It's always the same, you know, when couples go on holiday together. It either makes or breaks the relationship, you know? Now Bruce had always had a fairly uneasy relationship with Edward but it was strained further in March 1304 when Bruce's father died making him the new Lord of Annadale and the Bruce claim to the throne of Scotland. So on the 11th of June 1304 Bruce and William Lamberton they reached an agreement at Cambus Kenneth Abbey to support each other, and to support the Bruce claim to the throne of Scotland. All of this, Edward was completely oblivious to. Edward left Scotland in the summer of 1304, having conquered the country which was now officially a province of England. A new constitution and ordinance for the government of the land of Scotland was drawn up in September 1305, uh, 1305, with an English viceroy, Edward's nephew, the Earl of Richmond, left in charge. Scotland was now officially a province of England, a dependent of Westminster and how times have changed, I'm so glad that Wallace went to all that effort and sacrifice to, you know, spare us such humiliation again. Anyway, Edward, he still had to deal with William Wallace. He gave the Scots until 20 days after Christmas to capture him, mid June to mid January being deemed an adequate amount of time to capture the country's most wanton criminal, and about the same length of time it takes the UK government to get a test and trace app to work or to acquire some PPE. Edward said to John Common and to Simon Fraser in particular that he would be watching their efforts when it came to catching Wallace and if they weren't deemed worthy then he would then, they would both suffer the consequences. Wallace He was now public enemy number one and the subject of an intensely personal royal vendetta. He was a bit like Meghan Markle in that respect, I suppose. Revered as Wallace was throughout Scotland for his resistance to English rule, the stakes were quite literally so high. I mean, a £100 reward, that equates to about £130 million in Brexit money these days. It was unlikely there'd be someone willing to harbour such a high-priced fugitive, and unfortunately there was no Ecuadorian embassies in Scotland where Wallace could hide out in, so he was forced into hiding in a series of safe houses. And the man who eventually captured him, the man who gave him up, he knew Wallace well. William Wallace was actually the godfather to two of his children. Sir John he has gone down in Scottish history as its greatest ever traitor, although for Celtic fans they would still argue it's brendan rogers such as their delusion menteith he had fought at dunbar he was arrested after the battle he was imprisoned in england he earned his release by fighting for edward in france but immediately after his release menteith he rejoined the scottish resistance and on the surface he seemed like a stand-up guy but then he turned out to be a complete and utter total prick he's a bit like that sas guy aunt middleton you know And in February 1304, Menteith, like most of the Scottish knights, he had submitted to Edward and his submission to Edward had earned him the position of Constable of Dumbarton Castle and he was appointed Sheriff of Dumbarton, which admittedly does sound like the shitest cop show of all time. Menteith paid his servants to scout for Wallace, who was lurking in what is now Rob Royston, a suburb of North Glasgow. Wallace, he was surprised by Menteith's men in an isolated building in the forest and he was taken to Dumbarton Castle in chains. He was then ridden to to Carlisle and he was put in the custody of Sir John de Segreve, the recently appointed warden of Southern Scotland. There was then a 17-day kind of hate tour from Carlisle to London, 17 days being the average kind of commute time on Virgin West Coast, although HS2 should get that down to about 15 days by 2041. So Wallace, he was ridden through the towns and villages of England on this hate tour for 17 days while people came out to jeer the man who had caused their king so much bother. It was a bit like a a Trump campaign rally, I suppose. Wallace's hands, they were tied behind his back and his feet roped beneath his horse's belly. And when the procession reached London, the crowds were so large that they couldn't actually get to the Tower of London. So Wallace, he was housed in a a house in Fenchurch Street the night before his execution. On the 23rd of August, 1305, William Wallace was taken to Westminster Hall for his, inverted commas, trial. He was given a recital of his charges, immediate conviction and a sentence of death. The commissioners at the trial were Sir John de Segreve, the warden of Scotland, Sir Peter Malroy, the Justiciar of England, Ralph de Sandwich, great name by the way, enjoying that one, presumably they sat him in the middle, uh, Constable of the Tower of London, and Sir John Blunt, the Mayor of London. Wallace, he was charged with treason, murder, spoliation of property, robbery, arson, sacrilege, atrocities, and horrible enormities of every kind, which actually reminds me a lot of when I taught in Nidri. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was kind of like, that was like my morning register when I taught in that school. Do you know what I mean? You'd be like "Uh, that. Robbery, here sir, arson, here sir, spoliation, here sir, Uh, horrible enormities of every kind. Nah, he's off the day. He's after the day. Anyway, Wallace, he was accused of driving out all of the English sheriffs in Scotland, of convening Scottish parliaments and persuading Scottish nobles to submit to the lordship of the King of France in order to destroy the realm of England. Now, the only charge which William Wallace refuted was that of treason, as he had never actually sworn allegiance to Edward or paid him any kind of personal homage. Immediately after the trial, Wallace was to receive his sentence. First, he was stripped Tied to a hurdle face up and dragged through the crowds for four miles while he was pelted and jeered in the stag do section of the execution. William Wallace was to be given three deaths, which might seem like a ridiculous notion for you normal people, but for us stand up comedians, I can promise you this that three deaths is perfectly plausible, right? I have done gigs where I have died at least three deaths. All I'm going to say is this you try doing your Princess Die material at the Stornoway Volunteer Awards. Folks, yeah, I died at least 50 deaths that night. Even thinking about that gig, I have to go into the shower to get the smell of failure off of me. Anyway, Wallace's first death, it was for robberies, homicides and felonies against the realm of England. And for that, he was hanged to the very point of strangulation before being cut down. And when he regained consciousness, his genitals were cut off before he was then drawn like a chicken. His intestines pulled out, then his lungs, liver and finally his heart, which is pretty brutal, but on the plus side, it did make for a delicious patty. His second death was for deeds against God and the Holy Church, and for that, his innards were burnt. And if I knew they were going to burn my insides, I tell you what, I'd eaten loads of gunpowder the night before and just, you know, put on a bit of a show for everyone. His third death was for outlawry, for which his lifeless body was decapitated, his head placed on a pike and taken to the Billington Club in Oxford where future Tories could fuck it before it was then hoisted above London Bridge. The rest of his body was then cut into four pieces and sent to Newcastle, Berwick, Stirling and Perth where they were deep fat fried and served in the local chip shops. There's a memorial to William Wallace at Smithfield Meat Market in London. It's the spot where he was put to death and it's a must-visit place for any Scots in London. Uh, Unless you're vegan, then, you know, maybe give it a miss. Um, or if you're visiting us here in Scotland you definitely need to check out the Wallace Monument built on the Abbey, Craig in Stirling this is the spot where William Wallace launched his attack at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. At the building of the monument it was inaugurated in a weave of public enthusiasm and a crowd of 80,000 from all over Scotland gathered for the Lane of the Foundation Stone of the Wallace Monument in 1861. It was officially opened in September 1869. It's been a popular tourist attraction in Scotland ever since. The view from the top of the tower, it gives amazing views, uh, and I actually took my American pals there when they were in Scotland years ago, and a fun fact for you, one of them was so hungover when we visited that he actually vomited from the top, so uh, there you go. I don't, know. I don't know what Wallace would think of that, but anyway the the whole point of Edward having Wallace's body completely destroyed was not to was to not make a martyr out of him he didn't want somewhere where pilgrims could travel to to you know visit his resting place he wanted his body and his memory erased entirely but of course it didn't work. the brutality with which Edward had Wallace executed. It may have served as a warning to any Scottish nobles who might think about reigniting Scottish resistance or standing against him, but it also ensured that Wallace's story was to be cemented in the national psyche forever. The nature of his death, it only made the people in Scotland more determined than ever to remember him and to tell his story, and it ensured that the fight for independence did not die with William Wallace. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. If this is the first one you've listened to, then why not go out and uh, check out a few of the other episodes as well? It's the same shite. If you enjoyed this one, then you'll enjoy the rest as well. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, if you've listened to a few episodes and you're enjoying it, um, and you would, you know, if you've seen me in the real world, you'd buy me a cup of coffee, then you can do that at buy me a Coffee. Um, it's just at Montebank History of Scotland on there. And if you would like to become a a patron of the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com and you can like buy me a cup of coffee every month. It can be two quid, it can be three quid, it can be as little or as much as you want. It's all massively, massively appreciated. Thank you so much. Um, If you want to follow me on social media, it's just at Montebank Tours. That's on Instagram, Twitter, all the usual ones. And what I try to do each week is, on the podcast, I try and match what we've been talking about with a malt whiskey here in Scotland. And if I can raise enough money through my uh, Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon accounts, then I send someone who is deserving of that bottle of whiskey a bottle of it. Um, So it could be like a a key... A key worker, an NHS staff member, a patient parent, or just a thoroughly sound person. You can nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey by commenting on social media, giving me a follow on social media, sending me a DM, sending me an email, or leave me a comment on uh, the Patreon and buy me a coffee account. Uh, just say who you'd like to nominate and why, and I pick one at random. Uh, right, okay, that's if I can raise enough money, that is. Now anyway, um, so today's... Whiskey that I'm going to match with the podcast is Cardew. Um, it's a Speyside whiskey. Um, it's distilled in the village of Cardhu, uh, in the kind of knock and do region of uh, whiskey making. It's a delicious dram. And the reason why I'm I'm picking this dram is because a, a very famous woman in the whiskey making industry, a woman by the name of Helen Cumming, and uh, she ran Cardew. And when the, when the custom officers were coming, what Helen would do is she would hang out her washing to alert the rest of the village. And then the boys, they would go around the district letting other distillers in around Speyside know that the customs officers were, were on their way. And Helen coming, what she would also do is she would strap um, bladders of whiskey underneath her skirt and she would walk the 20 miles into Elgin to sell her whiskey to... To uh to, to to keen customers basically, and I thought you know when I read about Helen, I thought you know what that kind of rebellious spirit and fuck you and carry on regardless is uh has got an air of kind of William Wallace about it, and I think Wallace would quite like that. So anyway, that's why I have chosen the Cardu is a delicious dram, and you can nominate someone to receive that. Thank you once again for listening, folks. Um, go on, check out a few more of the episodes. Uh, If you would like, you can also go on to YouTube. I've got a YouTube channel at Montebank History of Scotland. Subscribe to that. Uh, Like, rate, review, do all the stuff that people ask you to do at the end of the podcast. And I will see you all next time. Thanks so much for listening. Cheerio. Bye-bye.